Welcome everybody to Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. Your podcast to hear about true crime, murder, the paranormal, and the evil underbelly of Tinseltown. Tonight our hosts are Patrick Bean, tour guide and husband and uh, cat lab. Um. (laughs) I'm that's my second role in life is being a cat surface and broadcasting virtually we have the very lovely and former tour guide for Hollywood's Haunted Tours Roxana Sanchez zoom in on our sound file Roxana's voice we are broadcasting with Zencast if you're wondering um how to do your own broadcast for uh a podcast um and then also the very lovely and former tour guide jameson carbonu uh and tonight we are going to talk about the very graphic and true crime of an unsolved crime of the Black Dahlia murder. So just a little warning to everybody who is listening tonight. The details are quite triggering. Uh, triggering. Uh, this is going to involve murder, um, mutilation, um, incest, rape, all of those things that, uh, you know, we here at Hollywood's Haunted find very interesting and uh we do talk about but they are also pretty horrible so if it is triggering to you maybe this isn't the episode you listen to we're gonna have some funner episodes later on but if you love true crime the way we do and you want to listen and learn about the black dahlia murder please stay tuned everybody sorry she's firing a machine gun and cooking some bacon (laughs) um but yeah i'm going to talk to you guys about the black dahlia which is yeah the most infamous unsolved murder in los angeles history but probably like american history i would say Mm -hmm. um but yeah we're all going to talk about um jameson's going to talk about george hodell who was one of the main suspects uh, Roxanne is going to give us the background of Elizabeth Short, who is the victim. The murder victim, the, yeah. The, I guess the Black Dahlia. Um, that's what she was. Spoiler! Right? <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you don't know, this isn't a positive podcast. That we yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, let's just get into it. Um, at 10.30 a.m., January 15th, 1947. A woman named Betty Bersinger is walking her baby in her in a, in a stroller. Sorry, a woman named Betty Bersinger uh, is walking her baby, a three-year-old, in a stroller. And this is around. This is in Laymare Park, specifically West Thirty Ninth Street. Um, and she, while she's walking her baby, she discovers a what appears to be a body in the bushes. Um, Initially, um, she reportedly thinks it's a discarded store mannequin because yeah. this area was a vacant lot. It was very much underdeveloped, but apparently there was a retail store within the area, and maybe they 
toss trash there sometimes or something. You know, yeah. she lives in the area, so maybe that's why. Either way, she kind of freaks out, doesn't really know what it is, so she does run to a nearby house and calls the police. Um, unfortunately, it's actually reported, and this is something I didn't know when I first uh, was re uh, researching this, was that it was reported as a possible 390, which is not a body or, you know, I guess a discarded store mannequin. <laughs> What's um, a, what is a 390? 390 is a stuporous drunk. Um, hmm. so, yeah. Oh, maybe she thought someone was, like, passed See, out? See, that was what I was thinking, but, um, I never actually came across any reports of Betty Bersinger's story specifically of what exactly she said, you know, yeah. when she called the police. Or if maybe they just put in the wrong code for it, you know? Um, so, e either, either way, you know, that that's what happened, and so it, the, you know, the report was given out so they've sent over the police but it's a stuporous drunk so you know that's not something they put up high on the priority list i'm sure when mm -hmm. it comes to police calls <laughs> um so the people that first arrived on the scene were actually reporters and this was because reporters were looking for the hot story so a lot of reporters had police radios and scanners so mm -hmm. when they heard of you know something happening they immediately drove over there and saw what it was. So there's actually reporters before the police even arrived. Um, they find this woman, Elizabeth Short, or Jane Doe at this point, uh, neatly severed in half, cut completely in half and very cleanly. She is drained of all of her blood. There are ligature marks on her ankles, wrists, and neck, and irregular lacerations on her right breast. Um, they also noticed lacerations on the right forearm, the left upper arm, and the lower left side of the chest. Uh, the medical examiners later on determined that she'd been dead for around 10 hours uh, prior mm -hmm. to this discovery, so that leaves the time of death January 14th or the early morning hours of January 15th. Uh, the body had been washed by the killer, and her face uh, there had been an incision from each corner of her mouth to the other side, basically extending her smile. And this was called a Glasgow smile. Um, she had several cuts on her thigh, breasts. Wait, and, why is it called a Glasgow smile? Um, that's interesting. Yeah, we actually, I remember doing the research on that. I didn't put it in here. But yeah, with the Glasgow <laughs> smile, it's called that because um, that was actually something that uh, certain gangs in Glasgow, Scotland, would do this to rival gang members, and so that way you mm -hmm. knew that that's where you got it. Um, it's like their mark. Their, their mark, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, it was used to be called the Cheshire Grin, I think, when it moved uh, to a different area. Right? <laughs> um, they're just very creative. It's with ruin their, all my childhood books there. <laughs> um, the lower half of her body was positioned a foot away from the upper half, um, and then uh, to the side. So it was up and to the side away from. So that's how far away they were apart. And her intestines had been tucked neatly beneath her buttocks. The corpse had been posed with her hands over her head, her elbows bent at right angles, and the uh, upper torso, like I said, was separated by 12 inches from uh, her lower half. They so, okay, so I just learned this. Mm -hmm. uh, rigor mortis sets in within a couple hours. So she, either he had a way of keeping her body soft 
you know, or she was only killed right before, mm, you know, within a few hours. That was one thing I was thinking too. With the, uh, was that or she, how she he, was clean. Or she was posed before rigor mortis set in. Mm. You know. That's interesting. But I just found that out. Shout out to Ask a Mortician. Right, yeah. That's a, that's a great <laughs> Cat, channel. What is, it, what is it? Catherine Doherty? Catelyn Doherty or Catherine uh, Doherty? I can't remember. It's a great channel. No, yeah. She, yeah. Did, she is a great. She's very informative. I should watch more of it. Um... The, there, the evidence that was left at the crime scene was a paper cement bag with blood stains on it, which detectives later on surmised that that was probably how they were moving the body, was by dragging it on this cement paper bag. Mm. Um, and then there was also a heel print at the crime scene, which they believe was from the, the suspect. Or, Did they say what? Like a male or female shoe? or it was, uh, it was a male shoe, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, no ID left at the crime scene, so this was a Jane Doe. Um, the call went out to news reporters who were monitoring the police radios. Um, literally, the bigger the antenna, the better. Uh, the so when you see that in like old movies and stuff, like cars with huge antennas, you know, mm -hmm. that it was possible they were reporters, you know, or you know, I guess cops, you know, but you would see, you know, an actual mm -hmm. cop car, you know. But, uh, yeah, if you had a big antenna, it's just like an, any antenna worked back then. You know, the bigger the antenna, the more broadcasts you could intercept. Um, so you probably got the bigger stories. Um, and that was important because uh, once you got the byline, which is, you know, the first story, you know, the, the Black Dahlia kill, you know, once you have that, that meant you, meant you had ownership of that story for mm. the newspaper. So anytime that story you know, proceeded, there was court cases, whatever happened, you were the guy that got credit and probably got money for it. Um, some reporters were to even pose as detectives just to get past the police line. And this was mm. kind of a common thing. Um, there was apparently an onslaught of reporters uh, there after they heard that she was cut in half. Because like I said, yeah, at first right. they said it was just a stuperous drunk. So everyone's like, eh, well, that's not that's a back page story, but yeah. if someone's cut in half. Holy crap, we got to get over there. And I mean, did. and that's pretty shocking, even to like today's standards. Like, I mean, right? Yeah, like I've done, after doing this podcast, I realize it is a little more common <laughs> than I thought, but that's it's true. still like other than the head and hands found at the Hollywood sign. Like, well, I, usually when you hear about killings, they're like they're the bodies are disposed of in some way, never really posed. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's rare, I think, you know, it's because, yeah, like the serial killers that bury bodies underneath their houses or burn them or chemically treat, you know, whatever. But mm -hmm. it, it, that, I think that's, that's creepy. So there was um, reporters there on the crime scene when detectives show up. In fact, there was even the extra edition, um, which was uh, edited by a man, a uh, reporter named Fowler. And he apparently got to the scene one, he was one of the first reporters to get to the scene, take some pictures, take it to the editor. The editor decides, this is crazy. We have to do this. So they did an unheard of late edition paper and oh. pushed it out that same day. Oh, wow. As they're doing that, he gets back to the crime scene still before the police. 
Jeez. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Like, granted, he probably got there before it was actually printed it on the streets, you know. Mm-hmm. But still, that's that's a long time. Yeah. Um, so the detectives had to argue with not only the press, but also civilians and people that were looky-loos and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then also other police jurisdictions, because this was Laymare Park, so it was kind of a different area at the time. There was other... It was a different area than Los Angeles, technically, so there was other police saying, you know, well, this is our case, mm-hmm. which kind of comes into play towards the end and kind of how um, terrible the LAPD did at mm-hmm. uh, keeping this case together. Um, they believed the uh, uh, suspect was probably a professional doctor or a surgeon of some kind because of how cleanly she was cut in half. And they did suggest that he used a scalpel because there was no sawing marks or anything. And this was using, it was called a hemicorporectomy. And that is a technique that was actually taught in the 1930s. So someone learning as a doctor, you know, that would have been taught before then or by then would know these, uh, this technique. Mm-hmm. Um, so that happens January 15th. So January 16th, the next day, 1947, uh, the Los Angeles Examiner decides to post in their front page of their paper, Do You Know Jane Doe? And it's a picture of Elizabeth. And they even were, they, they of course, with the picture, they put descriptions of her, like how mm-hmm. tall she was, what she was wearing, uh, type of, or not what she was wearing, I guess, but um, uh, hairstyle, stuff like that. Um, they didn't really get anything back from that. So they did find finger, uh, they used her uh, fingerprints and they thought maybe we can catch something off of that. Mm-hmm. And that was actually something that was pretty unheard of. It's not unheard of, but it was, it was still Barely new, new technology. Yeah. Um, so they decided to, the Los Angeles examiner decides to send the FBI uh, her fingerprints. And they actually used a uh, proto facsimile machine called a Soundex. Uh, basically one of the earliest faxes um mm-hmm. this was to to identify her and luckily she was caught underage drinking at a bar and they actually got a if you, you probably people listening that have seen a picture of elizabeth short this is probably one of the most publicly known ones it looks like a mugshot because it is a mugshot mm-hmm. um but yeah she was her fingerprints were taken and she was 17 at the time but luckily that happened because this was able to, this is how they were able to identify, identify her. her. Um, so they realized this, okay, it's Elizabeth Short. So it, it's right after they find out, find that out, uh, the examiner, um, which is owned by William Randolph Hearst, uh, if you didn't know, um, they decide to contact Elizabeth Short's mother, Phoebe Short, and she's living in Boston, Massachusetts. And they tell Elizabeth that, I'm sorry, they tell Phoebe that Elizabeth, their daughter, had won a beauty contest just to get information out of her. Um, After getting, you know, as much personal information as they could out of Phoebe, they then relay, you know what, your daughter has in fact been murdered. The newspaper apparently did offer to pay her for airfare and accommodations if she would travel to L.A. and help with the police investigation. They did find out that this was yet another ploy to kind of have just the examiner have her for the story. 
So they weren't bringing her out here to help with the case. They were bringing her out to keep her away from other newspapers. I mean, granted, she did eventually, you know, get there or whatever and was able to identify, but it was still like, even after that, they were still screwing with her, you know, which is so messed up. That's the media. Uh, <laughs> the media also nicknamed her the Black Dahlia. Um, they described her as an adventuress who prowled Hollywood Boulevard. Uh, additional reports in the LA Times deemed the murder a sex fiend slaying, which is to be debated, especially by the end of this. Um, the police and reporters actually did work together to solve the crime. This is something that's disputed heavily. I think a lot of people think like, oh, the reporters showed up early and they, they ruin the case because they were showing all these pictures and stuff but really the reporters had an advantage because they one were making more money the police and two were working hours that the police didn't you know police after five o'clock you hang up your badge or whatever and go home they never do that they just sit in their car and wait for a good story and they get it you know because um, that's you know big money for them and big credit as well um, so they worked together every time uh, Hearst's examiner was in fierce competition with the Chandler, uh, which was another uh, newspaper at the time. But the examiner basically won the case because, uh, and by win I mean they were they were selected by the police to work with specifically, and that's because they were the ones to first send in Elizabeth's fingerprints to be identified to the FBI. So I think the cops were kind of like thinking maybe it's a little bit more trustworthy of a mm -hmm. resource. Um, so they continue their investigation. On January 21st, 1947, a person claiming to be Elizabeth Short's killer places a phone call to the office of James Richardson, who is the editor of the LA Examiner. He congratulates Richardson on the newspaper's coverage of the case and states that he plans on eventually turning himself in but not before allowing police to pursue him further. Uh, additionally, he tells Richardson to expect some of Elizabeth Short's belongings in the mail. On January 24th, 1947, a suspicious manila envelope is discovered by a postal service worker. It's addressed to LA Examiner and other LA papers with individual words that it's the newspaper clipping, you know, like a ransom note. Um, and it reads, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. It contains her birth certificate, business cards, photographs, names of uh, names written on pieces of paper, and an address book with the name Mark Hansen. The packet has been carefully cleaned with gasoline, just like Elizabeth Short's body, um, which I was wondering if the gasoline was a way of keeping the body from reacting to rigor mortis. Maybe. Because uh, I thought, yeah, Jameson brought up a gas. I know it can get rid of a lot of evidence, like blood evidence and fingerprints and things like that. It's usually hmm. used in that sense. Okay. Like, I know it destroys, but they wouldn't have had DNA so at yeah, that time. Would, yeah, we wouldn't have been worried about that. But I do know it has been used as a cleaner in the past. Like, I've also heard of, like, some tragedies where it's like oh i was cleaning it with gasoline and then it you know caught on fire <laughs> you know yeah, and you're like, and you're like why were you gasoline? cleaning with gasoline but it was it was used as a cleaner so it's 
Yeah. Mm. I don't know. <laughs> um, so despite the efforts to clean uh, everything, several partial fingerprints were actually, uh, partial fingerprints were lifted from the envelope and sent to the FBI. Um, however, the prints were compromised and could not be analyzed. Um, the same day the packet was received by the examiner, a handbag and black suede shoe were reported to have been seen on top of a garbage can in an alley a short distance from Norton Avenue, from which is Lamarck Park where her body was discovered. Yeah. Um, the items recovered by police, uh, the items were recovered by police, but they had also been wiped clean with gasoline and destroyed the um, on March 14th, 1947, an apparent suicide note scrawled in a pencil on a bit of paper was found tucked in a shoe in a pile of men's clothing by the ocean's edge at the foot of Breeze Avenue in Venice. I thought this was so weird writing, writing this that scrawled on a pencil in a bit of paper found tucked in a shoe pile in a bunch of clothing. That's just, how did he know that note was going to be found? Sorry, yeah. but I guess it's just do what the note says. Uh, the note read, To whom it may concern, I have waited for the police to capture me for the Black Dahlia killing, but have not. I'm too much of a coward to turn myself in, so this is the best way out for me. I couldn't help myself for that, or this. Sorry, Mary. The pile of clothing was first seen by a beach caretaker who reported the discovery to uh, lifeguard Captain John Dillon. Um, the clues... The, I'm sorry, the clothes themselves that were found gave no clue about the identity of the owner but they did assume that this was uh, the black dahlia killer um police quickly thought mark hansen the owner of the address book found in uh by elizabeth short um i'm sorry by the suspect that had sent the uh address book he was a wealthy nightclub owner he was also a friend of uh short they they had stayed friends uh actually she had worked at his club for like two days um mm -hmm. later on they figured that out um he also confirmed that the purse and shoe discovered in the alley were in fact elizabeth shorts and toth shorts friend and roommate told investigators that short had recently rejected sexual advances from hansen and suggested it as a possible cause for him to kill her however he was cleared of suspicion um in addition to hansen the la police department interviewed over 150 men in the ensuing weeks whom they believed to be potential suspects red manley who had been one of the last people to see short alive was also investigated but was cleared of suspicion after passing numerous polyglaph polygraph examinations. Uh, he was the one that brought him back from uh, San Diego. Hmm. Um, dun, dun, dun. I'm sorry. Oh, after she was arrested. Mm -hmm. Yeah, oh, okay. Lewis was, uh, I'm sorry. So a total of 750 investigators from the LAPD and other departments worked on the case during its initial stages, including 400 sheriff's deputies and 250 California uh, state patrol officers. City Councilman Lloyd G. Davis posted a $10,000 reward, which would now be $114,000, uh, for information on Short's killer. Uh, after the announcement of this reward, a lot of various people came forward with confessions or just confessions of information, uh, most of which people, I'm sorry, the police just dismissed as false because they thought it was, you know, 
a lot of it was because of the money stuff, but um, a lot of it just didn't add up, you know, if they didn't have mm -hmm. the correct information, you know. Um, several of these false confessors were charged with obstruction of justice, too, because it was so, so many people. The notoriety of Short's murder uh, spurred a ton of confessions, uh, like I said. I'm going to take that out. Uh, during the initial <laughs> investigation into her murder, they received a total of 60 confessions, uh, most made by men. Since that time, over 500 people have confessed to the crime, some of whom were not even alive at the time of her death. Sergeant John St. John, a detective who worked the case until his retirement, stated, It is amazing how many people offer up a relative as a killer. As the killer, which is interesting. Uh, the suspects remaining under discussion by various authors and experts include a doctor named Walter Bailey, proposed by the former Times copy editor Larry Harnish, uh, oh. who Teresa, I know, is going to be talking about. Yeah. Um, Times publisher Norman Chandler, whom biographer Donald Wolf claims impregnated Short. Leslie Dillon, Joseph A. Dumais, who Joseph, side note, uh, was actually a suspect that they said did it and they caught him. It was Corporal Dumai, the, the headline read. And this was actually a, a, a ruse to get yeah. the Black Dahlia Avenger to admit that he the Black was Dahlia the Killer. I'm sorry, the Black Dahlia Killer. But he called himself the Black Dahlia Avenger, I'm sorry. Um, but that, that was the reason Joseph A. Dumai was put as a suspect put in the paper was because they were trying to draw him out. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, he actually did not do it at all. That was a total ruse by the police. Um, Artie Lane was a suspect. Uh, Lane, not Lang. <laughs> uh, Mark Hansen, Dr. Francis E. Sweeney, Woody Guthrie, Bugsy Siegel, Orson Welles. Uh, he did it. Right, yeah. I could see him doing it. Um, George Hodel, <laughs> uh, who Jameson's going to be talking about. Um, that's a great story. Uh, Hodel's friend, Fred Sexton, who comes up in the story as well. Uh, let's be real. They actually did it. Right. But, uh, okay. uh, George Knowlton, Robert Red Manley, Patrick S. O'Reilly, and Jack Anderson Wilson. Um, so this is, this is, these are people that are still considered suspects. These are people mm -hmm. that weren't, you know, I'm confessing and, you know, I, she was on the moon or whatever. You know, these were definitely people that had an MO. Had an MO, exactly. Which is really, yeah, that's some weird stuff right there. Mm -hmm. um, the police came to consider George Hill Hodel Jr. a suspect after the 1947 murder of Elizabeth Short. He was never at the time formally charged with the crime and came to wider attention as a suspect when he was accused by his own son, who is a Los Angeles homicide detective, and his name is Steve Hodel. And this was after um, a lot of uh, uh, several additional murders that uh, matched the MO as well. Prior to the Dahlia case, he was also a suspect in the death of his secretary, Ruth Spaulding, but was not charged and was accused of raping his own daughter, Tamar, but acquitted. He fled the country several times and spent 1950 to 1990 in the so yeah, George is acquitted. He, he he's never officially charged with the case, but um, his son Steve believes that he is uh, a part of this. But uh, Steve doesn't find this out until much later. Um, he, his when his uh, father passes away in 1999. Um, but uh, some of the cases that 
they thought were connected afterwards. Uh, one being on February 10th, 1947, was the murder of Jean French. And this was in Los Angeles. A lot of people, uh, I'm sorry, a lot of the media and detectives uh, connected to uh, Los Angeles also believed that this was connected to Elizabeth Short's killing. Uh, Jean French's body was discovered in West Los Angeles on Grandview Boulevard. Uh, she was nude and badly beaten, just like Elizabeth Short, and written on her stomach in lipstick was what appeared to say, fuck you, BD. Um, some people believe that that was, um, uh, it actually said PD, and it was FU Police Department, um, but other people believe it was BD saying Black Dahlia. Black Dahlia. Um, to kind of draw a little um, um, inspiration, I guess, for that murder, um, when reading the book, The Black Dahlia Avenger by Steve Hodell, he talks about um, his older brother, Duncan, hanging out with George. And while they were hanging out, he invited over a bunch of women. And on one of the women, he drew uh, big targets in red lipstick on her breasts. Mm. And they thought it was hilarious, apparently. They thought it was this great time. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, just so you know, that that actually ha that story actually happened. Um, so it's definitely weird seeing this killer. Um, just another link for you guys. Um, so, yeah, crime authors uh, Steve Hodell and uh, fellow crime author William Rasmussen have suggested a link between Elizabeth Short's murder and also the 1946 murder the year before, which was a dismemberment of six-year-old Suzanne Deegnan. And this was in Chicago, Illinois. Hmm. Um, Captain Donahoe of the LAPD stated publicly that he believed the Black Dahlia and the Chicago lipstick murders were likely connected. Among the evidence cited is the fact that Short's body was found on Norton Avenue, three blocks west of Degnan Boulevard. Degnan being the last name of the girl from Chicago. Hmm. There was also striking similarities between the handwriting on Degnan's ransom note and that of the Black Dahlia Avenger. Um, convicted serial killer William Herons served life in prison for, Degnan, for Degnan's murder. He was initially arrested at age 17 for breaking into a residence that was close to Degnan's, but hmm. not was never at the scene technically hmm. there was no evidence of that he was uh then he claims he was tortured by police and forced to confess and made a scapegoat for the family hmm. um additionally steve implicated his father george hodell as the black Dahlia avenger citing his father's training as a surgeon and it was also revealed in notes from a 1949 grand jury report that investigators had wiretapped hodell's home and they obtained a recording of a conversation of him with an unidentified visitor, who some believe was Felton Sexton, uh, saying, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. Wait, you gotta do the voice. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. See? They couldn't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary because she's dead. How about another cigarette? But he didn't say that. <laughs> um... <laughs> um so yeah, that was actually on tape that they caught him, and that was but that was 1949. That was two years after the crime. Um, and I said earlier. Earlier, that, I mentioned. Does that count? Yeah. Um, previously, in my discussion, so I got a lot of this information from reading Steve Hodell's *The Black Dahlia Avenger*. 
It is basically him doing an investigation into his own father. And this be, this is all starting from after his father passes away, uh, May 16th, 1999. Um, he receives a phone call from uh, June, who is his father's wife at, at this point. And June is, you know, freaking out because George has passed away. And so Steve, you know, consoles her and says, he, you know, he'll meet her and, you know, make sure everything's taken care of. Um, so when he arrives, he, June um, gives him the will, you know, to kind of read over and a photo album. Mm -hmm. um, and, and when she hands him the photo album, she says, I, I want you to find out who these people are. Um, and so he's kind of like, right, that's, that's weird, sort of, you know, like yeah. this kind of, but you know, it's, this is what she wants, you know, and like, there's nothing else he can do. Uh, the will itself was literally to do absolutely nothing. The will was to have no celebrations. The, the ashes were to be spread over the ocean. That's it. Mm -hmm. There was to be no service. There was to be, to be no obituary. That was it. He was just supposed to be erased in there. Um, the photo album was one of very few possessions he actually still had. Inside the photo album, when he opens it up, is a woman that looks eerily similar to Elizabeth Short. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's definitely a little, you know freaking out his mind a little bit because he's a detective and he understands, you know, the, the weirdness of the case already. Mm -hmm. And he also understands that, yeah, George could easily be the Black Dahlia killer because he's a surgeon. and He ran a venereal disease clinic and he was the head of it. And, you know, mm -hmm. it was, he had the MO. Um, freakishly enough, um, just as a side note, uh, Steve also notices that his, his own ex-wife, is in one of the pictures and he finds out later on that George actually was in love with Steve's ex-wife before Steve was even alive mm. creepy finding out mm. your dad probably slept with your ex-wife yeah it's good times <laughs> um, so Sorry, the LAPD never gave up jurisdiction on the case, and this was another reason the case never got solved. Uh, even when other cases were popping up in other cities right next door, even like Long Beach, and they were extremely familiar to the Black Dahlia murders. And like, man, no information was shared between agencies, and when a detective thought that he had a hot lead for some Black Dahlia clue, he was transferred to another division. So, obviously the LAPD yeah. did not want people looking into it. Yeah. Um, one of the similar cases was the White Gardenia murder. Um, <laughs> I know, like, it definitely doesn't sound as good as the Black Dahlia. The White oh, Gardenia yeah. murder. The Pink Posy murder. Yellow oh. sunflowers. Old Mindy. <laughs> Maura Murray, we are sorry for that one. <laughs> I spilled my water all over me in my bed. That was Maura Murray pushing it. Um, I deserve it. That's fine. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> um, yeah, so Aura, they, they called her the White Gardenia murder was because um, her body was... Um, 
her body was on top of a flattened gardenia corsage wrapped in tinsel. And that's why the press called her the, gar the white gardenia. Hmm. Um, which is kind of like, at least it was there, I guess, you know. Mm -hmm. It was better than the, the white gardenia wrapped in tinsel. Um, they, the, they did have one gentleman as a suspect for that murder, and it was a man named Paul. They did have a picture of him, finally, of this supposed Paul. Looked very similar. Like, very, very similar. Or was it Walt Disney? Ooh, right, yeah, they look so similar. <laughs> they do that's look a, true, lot, yeah. a lot alike, but it's uh, also kind of the look of the time. That's true, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's creepy. Yeah. Um, January 23rd, 1947, this was just something, uh, the crime reporter Agnes Underwood stated a rhetorical question as one of the title of her LA Times pieces, which was, will the Black Dahlia join album of unsolved murders? Um, if I didn't mention before, this was not unheard of these women being raped and murdered that that's a i mean it's still a thing obviously nowadays you know but it was a big thing in la back in the day and this was something that was definitely swept on the rug under the rug you know mm -hmm. mostly because you know they were prostitutes or something like that you know mm -hmm. and like something that they could societally away you know sweep under the rug or whatever but yeah this this happened a lot before the black dolly murder this yeah. was just it was an actress, and she was cut in half, so they want you know they were able to make a big story out of it. Also, the reporters were the first ones on the scene. Yeah. So there's no way. I mean, the body is very. The body is very shocking. Right. Yeah. Very shocking. Even even to today's, you know. I mean, and all these other ones are just like beaten to death, you know, and that and that's that's bad, but it's also like yeah, that's not as shocking. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, even with today seeing law and order and we kind of are used to seeing kind of dead bodies you know in movies and television and stuff like it's disturbing like it's yeah yeah <laughs> no. um there was also 1943 uh aura murray um i'm sorry that was the sorry that was the white gardenia uh 1944 georgette bauerdorf uh who is a, another socialite she was apparently an oil heiress as well she was strangled in her home in west hollywood california and her remain uh sorry her uh, murder remains unsolved 1946 gertrude landon um they believe she died of strangulation and this was sometime um sorry sometime uh, before midnight on july 10th uh 1946 no evidence of sexual assault on that case was found other ones they were on all of the other ones there was sexual assault um and this then it comes to the black dahlia killing 1947 then after that would be uh 1948 the kern real estate realtor who is found dead and she is stabbed to death by uh what the press dubs is a jungle knife which is a big military knife they specifically used in vietnam um they also um they also tied it to the black dahlia killing because the same style notes were after this killing um joe barrett who was a friend of the family um while um steve was living with george at the hodel mansion and this is off of franklin avenue um joe barrett stayed in a guest house in the back mm -hmm. um and joe barrett yeah like a he sorry he's a friend of the family and he recalls in an interview with steve 
He recalls Steve's brother Duncan, I'm sorry, Steve's brother Mike, taking Joe's knife that he received from a friend in the war in Vietnam. And this was a knife made for him. This was not a standard mm -hmm. issue knife, you know, so there was, it was, it was very detailed. Um, Mike apparently was playing with it in the parking lot and lost it, or at least that's what he tells Joe Barrett. And uh, this was in 1948. So when Steve discovers this, he sends Joe Barrett a picture of the knife as it was printed in the newspaper. And Joe's like, that's my knife. It's definitely his knife. Mm. It just so happens that George Hodel's son had it a few days before this incident, and then it disappeared. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like, you know, who knows? Um... So yeah, a lot of, uh, then there's even the kidnappings, uh, the Boomhauer kidnap murder, another prominent socialite with only a purse left behind, etched a cryptic note on the purse, which was uh, identified as a Black Dahlia uh, handwriting, the Gene Spangler kidnap murder, which was another purse that was found uh, in uh, Griffith Park. We did that episode. Yeah, exactly. That was, yeah. A, that was a good episode. Um, yeah, they never found her. Um, so yeah, a lot of, a lot of, uh, this wasn't unheard of, I guess, is the point I was trying to get across on that. Um, at the time, LAPD was very, very, very corrupt. Um, hopefully it's not anymore. I don't, I'm not a cop. I don't know. Uh, yeah. We love mm -hmm. cops, though. Just, okay. Uh, <laughs> um, one cop who was a very good cop after reading this, I wanted to, like, make a movie out of this guy. Uh, his name was Detective Stoker, and he was very much against the corruption in the LAPD, and he noticed that people were taking bribes and stuff like that. He also says that it was unheard of to not take a bribe. Like, he was already looked as, like, he was looked at as a crooked detective for not taking a bribe. You know what I mean? Like, like people were, it was, it was, yeah. it was that corrupt. Yeah. Um, so... He still, knowing that his career is on the line by testifying against fellow officers and stuff and fellow mm -hmm. detectives, he still decides to testify. Uh, he testifies in a secret hearing about all of the police corruption that he has witnessed as a vice detective in Hollywood. He went beyond what he had testified before, um, and that was to try and... Uh, he had Mickey Cohen actually helping him. Um, but then Mickey Cohen was shot at, so he stayed silent. Um, but so he basically opened up the floodgates and just started naming names and revealing everything. Um, he testified and revealed that there had been an abortion ring that was connected and protected by some of LAPD and its biggest gangs and gangster squad of the LAPD. All of said abortionists were actual doctors, and they all paid regular dues to operate above the law. Um, Steve believes that George Hodel was one of said abortionists. Um, several murders after the Black Dahlia um, could be connected to the Black Dahlia Avenger. Unfortunately, the case was locked tight. Uh, locked tight given to one detective and then obviously shut down by the chief of police. And that's the end of my story. I would like to say that we have a definite, can, and not, I, I also want to just say that you should definitely read the Black Dahlia Avenger if you're interested in this case at all. 
Yeah. You could go on for days. Uh, the amount of dots that connect him is 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 insane. I I used to think it was you know um, just a little bit crazy, you know, but there was he he had motive. He he believed in uh, the sadists writing uh, Marquis de Sade, and I think he just was never. Uh, he's constantly trying to make an artistic piece. Um, actually, you know what? There is one thing I forgot to mention that I wanted to put in the very end. Okay. Um, this was something that Steve said. Um, George used her body as his canvas and surgeon's scalpel as his paintbrush. George Hodel, through the homage to Man Ray, was provocatively revealing himself to be the Black Dahlia Avenger. Her body and the way she was posed was his signature both psychological and artistic on his own surreal masterpiece. And I think that's really what it was. Uh, a, a person that wanted to be artistic, that wanted to have meaning, that wanted to be more than normal, I guess, in his mind. Because he was, you will find out later, he was, yeah, he's very much babied and spoiled rotten and told he was a you know, a gift from God every day. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, um, don't, don't spoil your children. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. They'll become Black Dahlia murderers. <laughs> wow, okay, cool. Thanks, thanks for that. Yes, hey, everybody, this is Dino. And Michelle. And we're bringing you our podcast. Huh? Podcast. Okay. What do we do with her podcast? Think a little bit of everything. We got faith, family, horror movies, TV, kids, so, social media ridiculousness. We've got the most important message. Be decent Be to each other. All wrapped up in a little hour long or so chunk. You can reach us at gangalley.com, like a gang. In an alley. You can reach us on all your favorite pod chasers. We've got a Facebook group, a Twitter feed, and yeah, that's us. That's us. Our podcast. All right, guys. Have a good one. Peace. So I'm actually going to be talking a bit about her her life before she became the Black Dahlia. Uh, uh, her reputation, and then some of the rumors. Uh, that started circulating after her body was found. So Elizabeth Short uh, was born on July 29, 1924. What? Yeah, I heard that too. That was creepy. What was that? <laughs> was gasp. Did you hear a gasp? I heard a huh? Yeah, I hey. thought somebody was behind you or something, but... Jameson, that wasn't like your kid or anything. I mean, if it is, it's no, cool. I, but that's... I didn't even hear anything. Oh, shit, oh. man. That freaked me out, man. Yeah. Yeah, I heard a gasp after 1924. Oh, my God. Okay. What I happened in your apartment in 1924? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, she pretty much grew up around the Boston uh, suburbs. Her family did move around a bit, but that's pretty much where uh, she stayed. Uh, she was the third of five daughters. And her father worked, um, uh, he was a, 
builder of miniature golf courses. That sounds fun. I didn't know they had those back in the 1920s. Interesting. Uh, but in uh, 1929, during the stock market <laughs> crash, uh, he actually ended up losing all of his money, and his and she was always embarrassed about this. Uh, now this is going to come back uh, later in her life. Uh, so her family's growing up poor, um, and then around the age of 15. Uh, Elizabeth had to have lung surgery. Uh, before that, she suffered from severe asthma attacks and bronchitis. So after the surgery, the doctors pretty much told her that in order to make sure that the, the big attacks don't happen again, she kind of needed to spend at least the winter months in a more um, temperate climate. So during the winter months, she would actually head down to Florida and she would spend it with uh, family, friends, and then during um, the summer months and every time else, uh, she would come back and spend time with her family up in the Massachusetts, Boston area. Mm -hmm. uh, but she wasn't really um, into going to high school. She actually dropped out of high school her sophomore year. And then in 1942, so about when she was 18, her mother receives a letter from her father. Apparently, he wasn't dead. He had faked his own death and moved to Vallejo, California to start a new life. Oh, shit. Um, and so Elizabeth Short kind of wrote her dad um, saying, hey, is it okay if I come out to California and live with you? Um, I'll go ahead and um, I'll take care of the house and I will pay you so much money. Uh, to live at the house and his father her father was like yeah sure okay and so at the age of 18 elizabeth moves out to vallejo uh, california and she really hadn't spent any time with her dad since she was about six or eight years old uh he had because he had abandoned the family and they quickly started getting into fights because you know she was an 18 19 year old uh, she would sleep in. She wasn't taking care of the house like she had promised. She wasn't getting the money uh, like she said she would. Uh, so they would just keep having big fights. And she decided that she was going to move out of her father's house. And she moved up to the Lompoc area. Um, at the time, the Vandenberg Air Force Base was called Camp Cook. And she worked at the base exchange. And she ended up dating an American Air Force sergeant, one of a few. She kind of got a taste for men in uniform, um, but apparently he abused her. So she ended up leaving that relationship, uh, left her job, and moved up to or uh, moved down to Santa Barbara. Uh, Lompoc is about you know two hours north of here. Santa Barbara would be about an hour north or so. So she still stayed kind of in the Southern California area. Um, on September 23rd, 1943, Elizabeth was arrested in a bar for underage drinking. I think um, the, the picture, Tia, that you posted tonight advertising um, the podcast, that is her mugshot yeah. for when she got arrested for underage drinking. That's right. Um, yeah. So she, she liked to party. She, you know. Um, We've all drank underage, though. Liked having fun. Um, but because of the arrest, she was actually sent back to the East Coast. She was supposed to go back to Massachusetts, uh, but insta instead decided to um, go hang out in Florida because she would 
spent time there. She knew people there. Uh, while she was in Florida, she actually started to see another Air Force officer. Um, he was very well decorated, and while he was, you know, fighting in World War II, his plane crashed over India, and he was in the hospital. And apparently, he wrote uh, to Elizabeth and proposed marriage. Uh, she accepted it. Um, so she was engaged, and once he was going to get better and come back from the war, they were going to get married. But he actually ended up uh, dying in another crash on August 10th, 1945, uh, which, if you know your history, was about a week or so before the Japanese surrendered. Um, so mm. that's kind of a sad trombone for her. Yeah, right. Uh, and she had been seeing also another <laughs> Air Force um uh, another Air Force sergeant um, as as well because uh, she was, you know, super into the men in uniform. Mm -hmm. And about a year after her fiancé died, she moved out to California in order to meet up with um, one of the other Air Force guys that she had been dating uh, when she lived back in Florida. And so this was in July of <clears throat> 1946. Now, when she was dating uh, this other Air Force officer back in Florida, uh, they had moved in together, but he was kind of jealous because Elizabeth was a bit of a flirt. Uh, she liked to flirt with a lot of guys. She enjoyed getting the attention. She enjoyed having guys buy things. Um, but she wouldn't sleep with them. Uh, he wasn't really worried about that, but he kind of wanted her to make a commitment to him and only him. And she decided she didn't want to do that. So she moved out. They kind of broke up. Um, but he still ended up sending her money every month, even up until like uh, the month before she disappeared. And they still had a relationship and they would talk and, and, and call each other. Um, so she moves out to California, kind of stays with him for a little bit. He's stationed in Long Beach, but that didn't really work out. So she kind of went off and moved on her own. And for pretty much the last six months of her life, uh, she was bouncing around Hollywood, uh, working as a waitress when she decided she kind of wanted to work. Um, there was rumors and speculation that she did want to be a film actress, but there's not really any record or credits to her name. Uh, she did do some modeling, and in fact, about a week before she disappeared, she was telling her ex, uh, the Air Force officer that was stationed in Long Beach, um, that she was actually thinking about moving to Chicago uh, to become a fashion model. And this was not too long before she disappeared. Now, as she's living in Hollywood, uh, she was kind of bouncing around from place to place uh, with... Uh, was living with a, a friend that she knew back, back in Boston. Uh, but the problem was she didn't really keep a job for very long. And so she was always broke. One of the things people said is that she was always broke and always hungry. But she loved wearing uh, really nice clothing. And she was very concerned about her look. So she would actually dye her hair kind of a raven black. Uh, there was kind of a lot of people that would say it was like the blackest hair they ever saw. Uh, she liked to wear, you know, the bright red makeup. Uh, she liked to wear nice fitted black kind of um, tailored suits, frilly, very feminine blouses, a nice long glove. She just liked to be very glamorous. 
and uh, one of the roommates that she had um, said that uh, she was always going out. Her roommate worked nights, and anytime her roommate was up making breakfast, Elizabeth was jaunting out in the town, always looking for a new boyfriend, always looking for prowling the Hollywood Boulevard. And she actually did have a boyfriend. His nickname was Red. It was Robert Red Manley. He was 25 years old, and he was a married salesman. And uh, the day... Yes. <laughs> that's never happened back then. That's what the uh, red. That's what the red oh. stood for. And so he took her on a new <laughs> vacation down to San Diego. Now he claims uh, they did not have sex. Uh, that she slept in her clothing, and that was kind of her mo. That she was very much willing to accept these trips, gifts, money, dinner, but she did not reciprocate physically. In her mind, she felt that just. Being in the presence of somebody as beautiful and as wonderful as her was kind of her way of paying them back for all this attention that they would lavish on her. Yeah. So she really loved having that attention. So after their jaunt down to San Diego, Robert Red Manley um, he dropped her off at the Biltmore Hotel, and she was supposedly going to be meeting her sister who had been visiting from Boston. Uh, there's also some records um, or some witnesses saying that she was staying at the Biltmore Hotel, that she had kind of burned the bridge with her last known address, um, and that the people living there were kind of just tired of her slovenly ways and kind of kicked her to the curb. And so she was, you know, staying at the Biltmore Hotel, but not having any money. I don't know how she would have afforded it, because it is a very nice hotel. So she probably could have just been there again to meet her sister, but there are a few witnesses that do say they saw her at the Biltmore Hotel, uh, that she did use the lobby phone. She actually used it a few times, and then she left and was seen shortly after at the Crown Grill Cocktail Lounge on South Olive Street, and that's about a little less than half a mile away. Yeah, that's and like, that's she, that's super close. Super close, and that apparently she went to see somebody when she went to the Crown Grill cocktail. We just don't know who that was. And that actually happened on January 9th of 19... 47. Right, 40, 47. Yeah. yeah. 47. Yeah, that's, yeah, 1947. Um, so then comes a bit of the rumors that happened afterward. Uh, there were the rumors that she was a sex worker or a prostitute, um, but she wasn't. The, there was actually a grand, a grand jury uh, that went through all the evidence and didn't see anything that she was trading sex or sexual favors for money as a profession. Um, but she was enjoying men taking her out, buying her stuff, but she did not uh, reciprocate that. Uh, another rumor was that she was pregnant. Uh, the autopsy showed that she was not pregnant at the time. Um, other, another rumor was that she was frigid, and there was a rumor going around because during the autopsy, um, a deputy told a reporter that Elizabeth Short had obviously not been having sex with men 
because apparently her genitalia was a little bit on the smaller side, and that created this rumor that she had a congenital defect that meant her genitalia actually never developed, and so they were still infantile, and that's why she never had sex with any of the men. Uh, but the, there were sexual partners, just a few, uh, that were able to say, no, everything was fine, we did have sex, she just didn't enjoy giving it out to all of these other men. Uh, and so mm. that rumor that she was frigid, I think that she was uh, she was enjoying getting all that stuff for free and didn't feel like she had to reciprocate. She was 22 years old, for the love of God. Um, right, you know I, th- I think are. she was they just frigid. Me. I think if she was alive today, she what? totally would be on Instagram. She totally would have been some sort of influencer because that was kind of the... The, the life that she seemed to like to live, to be glamorous, to be yeah. seen, and to have attention, and not really have to work too hard for it. Um, and in, even when she was super poor, she still would spend whatever money she had on the latest fashion, because I think that was kind of the throwback of when she was a kid having to wear all that poor clothes, that even if she was poor, as long as she's having all of this gifts lavished on her and wearing all this wonderful clothes and looking beautiful, she wouldn't come across as poor. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, I can relate. I can definitely uh, relate then, to that, you know. Uh, there became the, the rumor that she was a lesbian, and that's because the reporter that heard the deputy say, well, she's obviously not having sex with men, thought he meant that, oh, she is a lesbian. And so then started, you know, to investigate all of these gay bars and trying to get some sort of, you know, dirt on her. Um, but again, she wasn't. She was very much into um, men in uniform and just and just men in general. She even mm-hmm. had a roommate that testified that all of this work that she was putting into her looks really wasn't to attract other women. It was very much to attract men, and she enjoyed um, the company of men. And uh, then after... Of course, she died. The media picked up on the whole nickname of the Black Dahlia. And that the origin of that is even just as mysterious as her, her murder um, because there's different stories. So according to like the FBI website, they say that it was the media that coined um, the Black Dahlia. Uh, and that is basically because the... Um, the black part of the nickname would come from her rumored penchant for sheer black clothes. Uh, then you also have the other newspapers at the time saying that she got the nickname Black Dahlia from a drugstore located in Long Beach, which she would go visit. Uh, that's what the employees and a lot of the patrons, they gave her the nickname the Black Dahlia um, they believed it was because she had that jet black hair that she, she would dye it black. And she would also put those white flowers into her hair. And so they kind of did the whole Black Dahlia nickname as a play on words based on the film The Blue Dahlia that had come out. Uh, and so there's still kind of that unknown mystery of was it really a nickname that was given to her before her death? Or was it a nickname that the press had pretty much given to her after her death. And um, that between the nickname, uh, how horrendous the murder was, I'm sure we'll go into that later, um, 
they believe that that's why the media just kind of took it and ran with it and why it became so, so sensationalized at the time. Uh, so now Short is currently uh, buried at the Mountain View Cemetery up in Oakland. And there is a little bit of good news. Um, about two weeks after her death or after her body was found, Assemblyman C. Don Fields was prompted to introduce the sex offender registry, making California the first state mandating the registration of sex offenders. Uh, so that was kind of spurred by the horrific murder of Elizabeth Short. And so that's where I leave off was her last seen location on January 9th, 1947. And again, that was at the Crown Grill Cocktail and Lounge. And so wow. that's the story of Elizabeth Short, a very brief life, kind of filled with ups and downs. And I think she was just a woman or a girl that was born ahead of her time. I think she probably would have been super successful as a YouTuber or Instagram influencer. Well, who uh, knows? Today. Yeah, who knows what she could have accomplished. Yeah, yeah right. On, on, to tag on the end of that, like I, when you're talking about the Biltmore and uh, there's, you're, you know, they were saying like they didn't know whether or not she was staying there or not. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to the Biltmore, but it's pretty big, and they don't really, you know, they don't know if everybody walking in there is a guest or not. Oh like, yeah, and there's like, like a bar and a restaurant. Yeah, there's a couple of bars. And... Yeah, so like when you walk in there, you know, no one really says anything. Like me and Tia have been in there a couple of times, and you know, went and sat at the bar and stuff, you know, and yeah. walked around and checked out the pictures. Uh, a lot of the pictures remind me of the 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 shining, the shining <laughs> where, where, where they see yeah. Jack Nicholson. In we the were there on New Year's Eve, like five minutes before uh, the countdown. Yeah, before right, the yeah. countdown, we just like wandered in there, and they just handed us champagne and like. <laughs> that's so nice. It, it, it was, was. It was yeah, very much. Nice. But that's why I was like thinking, like I feel like a person like Elizabeth Short might have been like, oh, I'm gonna stop by the Biltmore for an hour because yeah. that's my routine, you know? So they're like absolutely, and she was kind of also known for crashing in weird places. Uh, for example, the lobby of the Aztec uh, movie theater. And oh, so wow. it probably wouldn't be above her to have maybe found a couch or something, uh, a milk or something at the Biltmore Hotel, maybe yeah. fashion there a bit, or getting a boy toy to pay for a room or something. But, you yeah. know, the, the one definitive thing was she was there on that day and she did use the lobby room. And they do, uh, just like Bordner's, um, Biltmore has a cocktail based on the Black Dahlia. Things get safer to go out without yeah. um, want to be a place to stop and I guess compare. See? I wonder right, yeah, exactly. when she went to San Diego, I wonder where she stayed at. I wonder if it was the Del Coronado. Um, it it could have been. It could have know? been because it would have been open at she the time. Stuff. Um, we should ask around when we go visit. Right, yeah. 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 Maybe there's an old man who knows a tale or two. <laughs> He'd have to be pretty... Are you looking for Elizabeth Short? <laughs> He'd have to be pretty old at this point. <laughs> you can call me Red. <laughs> you were the one that gasped on our podcast. But I should book us I should book us a night stay at the Biltmore too. That's a good idea. You know. Yeah. 
when oh, things open up. Too. Yeah, when things open up and when we start ghost hunting. Not if, when. When. Okay, when. yes, when. When if. Because we are, we're going to do that. And, you know, as much as I make you guys do a lot of things, we're going to no. do that. Mm-hmm. 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 Sounds fun. Yeah. No, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, Elizabeth, uh, it's nice to, like, put the rumors to rest yeah. of, like, you know, the whole prostitution thing. The whole, like, you know, like, she was just a person that wanted to, like, go to Hollywood and and have fun, you know? Like, like, yeah, man, I would love to not list the things I did when I was in my 20s when I came to Hollywood, you know? Unfortunately, she had her entire life displayed for years to come. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, I can also relate to the whole, like, dressing better Thing. Like, as soon as I had money to spend on clothes, like, I was spending my entire paycheck at Hot Topic. Well, you know? I remember, like, every one of my friends, especially the friends that were, like, an actor, they had, like, one really nice fucking suit, and they would go out clubbing in that one, you know? But I was yeah. also, like, the one they had their headshots in, and the one, yeah. That, yeah. you know, like, there was, like, that was their expense, you know? But they played it off, you know? Because it's Hollywood. It's all... Everything's built and, on and, two by fours. At twenty-two, isn't there that saying that nobody likes you when you're twenty-two? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Kind of expect things to be handed to you, and so that's where she was at the time of her murder, and so that's why the press was able to get all of this, you know, dirt on her was because yeah. she was a twenty-two-year-old. Uh, the people that she had interacted with, yeah, she was a little bit lazy, yeah, she was a party girl, yeah, she liked to sleep all day and party all night and enjoy seeing different men and everything. But again, you've got to remember, she was a girl, she wasn't this woman, she wasn't, you know, and she, her, her, yeah. you know her cortex uh, hadn't fully developed yet. Yes, yeah, she had, a lot of people put a lot on, you know, oh, she kind of deserved it or this is why it was okay, but it, it really isn't. She would have been a co-ed probably uh, today. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. And I mean, and like, I definitely grew up pretty lower middle class. You know, I mean, like my parents did what they could, but I didn't have you know, the clothes that I wanted all the time, you know, and as soon as I had my freedom and, you know, I went fucking crazy, (laughs) you know, I don't know. Pat was there. You'll have to ask him. I don't remember most of it. She dated two different Air Force pilots. Yeah. Um, (laughs) One from Florida. Um, She's a two-timer. Three-timer. It was, yeah. It was, it was pretty intense, as let me just tell you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess um, next, I we discussed this a little bit earlier, but yeah. uh, I think next we wanted to talk, uh, next Jameson was going to go with kind of like our number one suspect. Uh, well, I, I first wanted to start off by just saying to the listeners that we're giving our points of view on this story from basically from one source and like you said our our number one choice as far as uh suspects are concerned is that right correct yeah yeah that's 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 fair so that being said uh a lot of our or basically 100 percent of my research is coming from a book called the black dahlia avenger which is actually what the killer of the, the black dahlia called himself 
uh, in his in his letters to the uh, newspapers and whatnot. Um, but the book is called Black Dahlia Avenger, and it's written by Steve Hodell. Now, to li listeners who don't know who that is, Steve Hodell is actually the son of the person I'm going to talk about, George Hodell, and he is a retired Los Angeles Police Department detective. And upon reading this book, uh, not having much knowledge of this case or of this story for the most part, uh, reading it, it, in my opinion, it seems like he's basically laid out the case and solved it um, in a way that to me seems absolutely uh, true, not to mention the fact that he's a police detective. So, <laughs> you know, it's not some author who's like, I did all my research and this is what I got. It's like, this guy's a legit police detective. So he knows what to, what he knows what, what facts need to be presented in order to have a case convicted, you know? Right. right. So in my, in my case, in, in, our, in our case, I should say, that's why we're using this, this uh, book and this author as our main source of, uh, uh, for this story. So that being said, let's get into the story of our number one suspect in the murder of uh, Elizabeth Short, George Hodel. So George Hodel's father, George uh, Hodel Sr., was actually born uh, in Russia uh, in a place called Odessa, which is on the Black Sea. And his actual birth name was Goldgefter. Uh, so, and I'm assuming that his first name was George when he was born. I, that wasn't clarified. He was introduced as George Hodel Sr. Um, but uh, when he decides to escape Russia and the persecution of, uh, I believe, him being Jewish, uh, he left and got a fake passport and um, name and traveled to uh, Vienna under the uh, guise that he was going to visit his sick mother. And he he actually on the train gets stopped by, <clears throat> excuse me, by a, uh, an, a an officer, and because he's sharply dressed and has like nice luggage and stuff, the, the officer kind of lets him go, uh, believing him. And that's how he's able to escape. And, and uh, when he gets to Vienna, he travels on to Paris and, and ends up living in Paris for a while. So when he gets to Paris, he meets um, Esther, Esther Leon, uh, who happens to also be Russian, but she's actually living in Paris and practicing as a dentist in 1900. This is right on the turn of the century. Um, <clears throat> being a female dentist, that's kind of a, an accomplishment in, in 1900. So that was kind of a cool thing, but, uh, they marry pretty quickly. And, uh, on May 4th, 1901, they marry and, uh, they pretty much leave immediately for the United States and arrive, uh, on Ellis Island on May 31st, uh, 1901. Uh, when they, when they arrive in New York, they quickly make their way to California and they end up in Pasadena. So pretty close by. Right. So George is born October 10th, 1907. Um, he grows up speaking French in the house. They speak French. Uh, prime, uh, that's basically his primary language. Um, so he's fluent in French and English. And at five years old, um, by the way, before I go any further, I, the reason that I wrote these notes out and the reason that I'm presenting these, these, um, these facts and the way I'm telling these things is to kind of get the listener to understand why, why these tendencies to possibly be a murderer or a psychopath um, could possibly be instilled in him and why he may have acted as, uh, you know, the way he did, the, the, the way that he carried out these, these murders. 
as I'm giving you the story, I, I don't talk about any of these things. Um, I just kind of give you examples of how he possibly came to be the man he is. Okay. So, yeah. So, uh, again, growing up speaking French in the house, um, uh, living, living, um, sorry, excuse me, let me start over again. So grows up speaking French primarily in the language. And again, at five years old, he's sent to Paris, um, to, uh, basically to, to stoke his mental abilities as they put it. Um, his parents think that he's very gifted and very smart and right off the bat, basically he's told that he's a special child and something that I forgot to mention earlier was that his mother supposedly there was a rumor about his mother coming from uh, Russian aristocracy. So that was, I think that idea was floated around to him as a child is that he was the child of, you know, of somebody who, who, who would have been in royalty. Prince basically. What's that? He's a prince. Yeah. Kind of like that kind of thing. Like he, he may not be a prince, but he could be like a dude. Yeah. Something like that. Some kind right. of royalty, whatever it is that's embedded into his knowledge. Um, and he goes to France and he stays with a very, you know, prominent family there and, you know, uh, basically is taught over in France and, and brought up to be this, you know, prodigy, you know, um, he's living with a count and a countess. So that kind of tells you where, what, you know, he's five, six years old and living in this posh, you know, existence. Um, he returns two years later, uh, and he starts to learn piano and immediately he's just, a natural at it. He's amazing. Um, he's writing his own compositions. And by nine years old, uh, his reputation is all over Southern California. He's just, everyone's like, holy crap, this nine year old kid is like ridiculously amazing at, uh, at the piano. So already he's got it. He's kind of got a big ego at nine years old. And uh, the French committee even chooses to have him play before the Belgian mission in 1917. Again, this is all he when he's nine years old. So <clears throat> very, uh, very, uh, very smart kid. Let's see here. So, you know, he, he takes these, he takes his parents think he's very gifted. He takes these tests and he ends up scoring on an IQ test 186. Okay. And apparently the author says that that was actually one point higher than Einstein scored on his IQ test. I remember reading that and wondering uh, if that's, if that's true, but it's, that's still a really high score. Either way. I mean, 186, I mean, and like, he's like, you know, he's like, I think he takes his test when he's like 12 or something, you that's know, crazy, man. that's crazy. I took an IQ test recently and it was not good. How <laughs> <laughs> was it? Uh, it was bad. Cause I didn't really try, uh, but when I was a kid, I took this really, I took this test to get into the GATE program. Did you have the GATE program growing up? Gifted and Talented Education. Mm, I've never heard of that. Uh, and when I took the IQ test recently, I was like, that's what they gave me. Like, I just thought it was like a, oh, I have to take this test to get into this program, whatever. And I passed, oh, like, when I was a kid, I passed very easily through it. And I didn't understand what these shapes. Have you ever taken an IQ test? A long time ago. Yeah, it's like I, I there's like a okay, so there's like there's like a triangle with uh like dots in it, and another triangle with these dots in it, and what you need to pick from these other triangles, which triangle would come next? 
you know, like these dots in it. And so you're supposed to, okay, yeah, in yeah, your yeah. mind, decide what is going to be the next in the sequence. Right. And when I was a kid, I was like, I really remember really thinking into it, like, okay, well, that means that, and that means that. And so I'm going to, you know, this is going to be the next thing. And I remember passing the gate test very quickly, you know, and I got into the program, but my close friends didn't. Hmm. And it was devastating to them that they didn't get to go into this program. And I did. You know, it was these special classes. We got to go to this other school and take these special special classes and everything. Uh, and I remember my mom pushing for me to be in this program and to take this test and stuff. So recently when I took an IQ test, which was just for fun, and then I got really bored halfway through the IQ test and I really didn't want to do it because it was a lot of work. Uh, I was like, that's the test. That's like the test that I took as a kid. Was It was 100% an IQ test. Hmm. Very, very weird. Anyway, hmm. sorry. Interesting. Well, <laughs> again, I mean, he, he's very young. He takes his test and apparently he scored even higher than Einstein did. So, you know, you have a very smart kid who's been raised to tell you, he, he's being told he's very special. He's unique. He's possibly royalty. He's living with dukes and, you know, whatnot. It's just already this kid's got an ego and, it, you know, he's 11 years old. Yeah. So he graduates high school at 14. At 15, he attends the Cali the California Institute of Technology as a chemical engineer at 15 years old. That's crazy. <clears throat> right. Um, apparently he, he's either dropped, he either drops out or he's expelled. Um, we don't know why there was a bunch of, there was a couple of rumors that went around that he was screwing around with a staff member. Uh, the other rumor was that he got caught gambling, that they were playing poker and he got caught, he got expelled. So if, if it's the rumor of him messing around with a staff member, that shows that he's already sexually advanced and, and, and possibly, you know, having sex, uh, as, and having sex with older people, you know, older women. So it seems that he's very mature for his age, if that's indeed what did happen. But uh, according to the author, he, he wasn't sure what he, he, he didn't have a reason for why he dropped out or was expelled, expelled. Mm -hmm. Um, he, after that, he kind of just sets out to get some, some odd jobs here and there. And, uh, here, here there's a long list of them. Um, at, at one point he actually, before I get into the jobs, he actually, at one point he actually, um, becomes a member of a training group called, uh, or a training group that's basically a long running experiment in developmental psychology. Okay. So they're going to get all these, this doctor, uh, his name was, um, Dr. Terman. Uh, and he got a group of, 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 uh, testees to play, uh, that he called his Termin's termites, which I thought was an odd nickname, but. Sounds uh, like a fifties <laughs> doo-wop group. Yeah. Well, this is 19, <laughs> what, 1920, whatever, you know, 1920, 19, yeah. God, it's, yeah, like 1922 or something. So I just remember my mom's favorite band is Herman's Hermits. Oh, there you go. <laughs> well, the opening band was Termin's termites. <laughs> the opening band um so he, he joins onto this this he joins this group and so constantly this guy is like checking in with him and you know just showing how we're, you're really smart and we're going to study how smart you are and we're going to you know constantly be be telling you how smart you are so now he's got that added to his resume of people that are you know in awe of his amazing brain um so he he uh 
oh, he's, he gets validation that he is special or gifted. So, um, okay, so we're talking about the odds and ends of the jobs. Uh, 1924 to 28 is when most of these jobs are going on here. So in 1924, uh, at the tender age of, uh, what is it, 16 or so, he's already a crime reporter for uh, the LA, uh, for the LA Record, Los Angeles Record, which is the name of the newspaper. He's a crime reporter. So now he's zipping around all over Los Angeles with these police officers and going in to these, you know, different scenes of crime, whether it's murder or drunk people or whatever, it's the debauchery of Los Angeles. And he's 16 years old and doing these stories. Uh, so, you know, right off the bat, he's sub subjugated to these horrific things. Um, and when, sorry to interrupt, but please. man, when I was reading that part about, uh, yeah, him being a crime reporter and then him reporting on those crimes, like the way he would describe the crimes were so creepy. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely, super uh, weird. what Patrick is talking about is that his father, uh, well, Steve actually gives examples of George's articles from newspapers. So um, you can actually read his reviews on uh, talking about like coming out on a murder scene or, you know, something like that, where if, if the listeners are interested in, in reading some of these stories that in the book he does, give examples of his father's um, articles for different uh, situations. So some of the articles were him writing about a crime, uh, about like a murder scene that he just walked in. Some were talking about like uh, breaking up like illegal bars and uh, dance clubs uh, and talking about the clientele. So you get, I think he gives about five or six different examples of, of, uh, you know, of his writing articles. Yeah. Of his writings. Exactly. It was interesting. Yeah. Cause like, yeah, you, I feel like, normally the reportings on some of these crimes would be a lot more factual but he describes it in these awkward details and giving these backstories to things that are just like no that's this is just a you know what i mean i don't know there was a yeah. lot of things that seemed to be exaggerated for his own pleasure no you're right he he kind of wrote it more like describing the like setting the scene as opposed and kind of like we're almost romanticizing it in a way right yeah opposed to just I, being like you know the crime scene happened. There's, here's the facts, blah, blah, blah. Like he was painting you a picture. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, he's, you know, like you said, he, you know, he's, he's kind of almost perverse in a way where he's getting a little bit of, it's getting his juices flowing, if you will. Right. Yeah. He's getting a thrill just from writing it. Right. Right. So, you know, 16 years old, traveling around with the cops, hanging out with older guys that are really, you know, they've been on the job for a while. So they're gristled. So they're, there's, you know, salt of the earth guys. And, you know, when you're 16 years old, you're, you're, you're dazzled by that stuff. And, you know, to be traveling around, you show up with the police. It's like, you know, you're almost like a VIP and, you know, you, and you get your, you know what I mean? So it, it's definitely an ego thing, you know, absolutely. Um, takes another job. Uh, after that, uh, after he leaves there, um, he starts publishing a literary magazine called Fantasia with, uh, with a friend of his out of his own basement. He has a uh, printing press. And uh, they do, t they only do two issues, um, but they're covering like art and film and books and just kind of talking about it, just artistic things in general um, and kind of reviewing it all. Uh, and that comes, the only reason that I mentioned this is because that's important to, to George's character is he's very much into the art world and very much into uh, creating things. And we'll go into that a little bit more, but uh, yeah, so he comes out with this, this magazine Fantasia, um, again, only lasting two issues. Uh, at, at 17, he, uh, becomes a cab driver, uh, and, you know, 
he's try he's working at night so he's getting you know he's working downtown by the biltmore and picking up all sorts of cab fares and you know i mean i can only imagine what it's like at downtown in the middle of the night you know being a cab driver yeah stories for days you know uh quick side story mm -hmm. my brother was a cab driver up in san francisco in the 80s and uh one of his cab fares hit him over the head with a fucking bottle there you go uh and uh if you know anything about northern california around the 80s that is zodiac time mm -hmm. zodiac was known to do stuff like that so mm. my brother was kind of said that you know zodiac yeah he might have escaped yeah some death <laughs> he might have escaped the zodiac there <laughs> right? uh, but or, or someone else or whatever but nobody wants to get hit in the head with a <laughs> bottle as a Right. Yeah, Zodiac killer or not. Yeah, exactly. Like, no one wants to get hit with a glass of Uh but yeah. <laughs> Fun little story my mother told me in my youth. Um <laughs> nice. Nice. Well, uh yeah, I mean it, it, George had to deal with that crap and apparently he didn't have a problem with it. Um he didn't mind fighting. You know, he was known to grab people by the shirt and be like, you know, I'll knock your teeth in if you don't pay or, you know, whatever it was. And so he had a he had a reputation of of that he also had a reputation of talking about dark things just he just kind of was like like to talk about things that were not you know popular subject matter and kind of yeah could you imagine him being your cab driver <laughs> yeah right i think that was more now that is funny uh i think those stories more came from his coworkers, but absolutely that'd be hilarious <laughs> one uber star on this guy geez right exactly oh <laughs> good lord would you like to be in two places tonight? Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> thinking about sawing women in half. No? Okay. Yeah, anyways. Where did you say you live? Pasadena? Got it. So uh uh but yeah, working that night shift, again, you're in a you're in you're in a you're only 17 years old and you're you're dealing with all this nonsense. You know, you gotta have a tough edge to yourself. You gotta know how to talk to people, gotta know how to protect your ass, you know. Um, then he, then while he's doing that, he becomes, he also becomes a copywriter, uh, first for an army and Navy store. And then he becomes one for SoCal gas, the SoCal gas company. Um, he parlays that into a radio career. So he becomes a radio announcer and uh, a public relations officer. So, I mean, all this is before he's like, you know, he's like 17, 18 years old. He's already doing all this stuff. That drove me nuts reading that, that like the dude had accomplished like five people's lifetime. <laughs> yeah. 20. Yeah, and, right. You know, and, and, like, and he's I'm, like, and I'm still bored. And yeah, I'm right. with 17-year-olds. Yep. Yep. Right now. <laughs> yep. You're, you're, yep. Well, you, neither of us has an IQ of 186, so there you go. That's true, yeah. Well, I've been taking the test recently, so I'm not gonna say. I got bored of that. I could have like a 187. You guys have no idea. Yeah, right. Let me, just, let me just finish my beer to lower it real quick to Georgia. Then. Right. Shout out. Okay, 186. I'm <laughs> um. So yeah. So he now he's like he's doing like radio announcing. He's doing commercials and stuff. So he he's he's parlayed that all in for and this he's all doing this in the name of so. Southern California gas company. So, um, he picks up a love of photography. So now he's got, uh, he's got camera and he's, he has his own dark room in his house. 
Uh, so he's doing photographs of everything. And he actually ends up getting a one man show in Pasadena. Um, like they, they approach him and want him to, to do like a photography exhibit. So he does a one man show in Pasadena. Uh, oh man, I thought when you said one man show, I was like, wait a minute. I did not see that part in the book. <laughs> I thought, man. You were thinking yeah. like. Not vaudeville or something like that. Yeah, some like, yeah. this is the story of President Washington. No. He wasn't the guy with the trombone and the trumpet and the, <laughs> and the drum and the cymbal. Uh, Dick Van Dyke. It right wasn't there. Dick Van Dyke. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. He wasn't one man bad. He didn't go that far. <laughs> oh, uh, but around this time is when he's starting to buddy up with uh, with our with our main man Fred Sexton, um, and this is a this is one of uh, th this is a character who comes on later in his life uh, and becomes a close personal friend of George's uh, right up until he fl uh, leaves the country. Uh, but uh, Fred Sexton comes to the uh, to the show um and uh he starts uh he starts hanging out with kind of that that uh uh that crowd of uh of artists so he now he's now he's in the art scene as well as uh you know he's doing the radio show he's doing the art scene so he, he's got that going for him um okay so in 1928 um george um meets meets a girl named uh amelia and uh they they hook up and they end up she ends up getting pregnant and they have a son and uh, the son's name is Duncan. And uh, they move up to San Francisco and he, he enrolls in uh, pre-med in Berkeley uh, with the three of them or with, well, with the two of them, I'm sorry, with Duncan and Amelia. Uh, up in San Francisco, while he's doing pre-med, he becomes a longshoreman, uh, which again, tough guy, gritty, hard work down down the shoreline becomes a cab driver up in san francisco so same as your uncle uh he also becomes a writer for the san francisco chronicle uh doing like an advice i think they were doing like him and his i think it was him and his wife were doing kind of like a, a dual column about like city life in san francisco or something like that mm -hmm. um just kind of like you know what's on the scene that kind of thing um yeah yeah right <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm just assuming. <laughs> so uh, he graduates uh, from pre-med in 1932, and then he goes on to uh, medical school at the University of San Francisco. And while he's there, uh, he becomes involved with Dorothy Anthony. Now, he starts kind of hanging out with Dorothy Anthony, and he really likes Dorothy. And somehow or another, he's able, because he's a really smooth talker, uh, he's able to convince uh, Emily, uh, uh, Amelia, that hey, she should live with us, and the three of us should all kind of like live together. And she's like, oh, I guess that's not really something I'm interested in, but sure, okay, why not? And what do you know? Soon after that, Dorothy becomes pregnant. <laughs> Who saw that one coming? So. So now she, so now he has kids with Amelia and Dorothy. Uh, and has, and, and yeah. And so they're, they're doing that thing. So. But that's Kelly and Steve, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> with Dorothy. That's right. It was the two, the two, uh, it what part, I don't know what, what area code they were in. It wasn't 90210, but it was close by there. I don't know what zip code is. Wait, what? Yeah. In San Francisco. Um, 
could guess. But, <laughs> but yeah, so so they, they uh, she gets pregnant, and then they have they have their daughter, and their daughter is Tamar, and uh, Tamar Hodel, and uh, to, so now he has a he has a daughter with Dorothy, and he has a son with Amelia. Uh, okay. Oh, okay, and they're all living together. Sorry, Kelly and Steve come later. Yes, Kelly and Steve come later. Jumping the gun there. <laughs> Uh, let's see here. So, um, in 1936, he graduates, uh, uh, medical school at, at 28. So already he's a doctor at 28 and, uh, they moved to Arizona. They all moved to Arizona and, uh, he becomes a doctor at a logging camp and then, um, works his way up to a public health officer. Um, Amelia leaves cause she's done with it. And Dorothy moves in. Uh, and then when she moves in, George sends them all back to San Francisco and he's like, nah, I'm going to do this all by myself. So he sends everybody out, uh, back to San Francisco. Uh, he comes back to Los Angeles in 1938 and he becomes the LA County health department. He starts working for the LA County health department and he opens a private practice in downtown, uh, Hollywood or downtown Los Angeles, excuse me. All right, so um, the uh, the the place that he's running the um, uh, the private practice he's running tr mainly treats venereal disease. This is a huge problem because penicillin has yet to be invented, and a lot of people have VD in the city. So um, he is start starting to able uh, he's starting to get a, a large client list. He's getting famous people. He has a lot of dirt on on celebrities. Um, so he's able to, he's able to blackmail people, but we won't really go super into that. But because of this, now he has a lot of, um, clout in the city. Back in LA, um, he reunites with, uh, Dorothy, uh, sorry. Uh, he, he becomes friends with, um, I, sorry, let me start over again. When he's in Los Angeles, um, he kind of becomes friends again with somebody who he had known earlier, uh, in his dating circle. And her name was also, also Dorothy. Um, but her last name was Houston. Now she was actually married. Uh, and the reason that her and George weren't dating is that she was dating a guy named John Houston. And John Houston is an extremely famous uh, director from the thirties, forties, fifties. Believe he directed the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Okay. He's the dad of Angelica Houston. The father of Angelica Houston. That's right. So the author's mother was once married to Angelica Houston's father. There we go. I think I got that right. He has no relation to her because it was her mother who was married to him and they didn't have any kids or anything. So he doesn't have any kind of half sisters. They didn't have children together. So that he has no half sisters or brothers or anything with the Houston family. The author, Steve Hodel. Um, but he reunites with her and he's basically like, all right, bye past wives. I'm down with Dorothy, this Dorothy, but he calls her Dorero. Uh, so he, they don't, so they don't, you know, cause he's got two Dorothy's in his life now. Um, and starts calling her Dorero, uh, which, uh, he combined two words of, uh, which was, uh, door was gift and Rero was the God of sexual desire. Oh, sorry. Excuse me. Door was gift and Eros is the God of sexual desire. And so he put them together. That's the Greek word. So he put them together and he got Dorero. So there you go. <laughs> so he starts calling her Dorero. They hook up. She has a child with her. 
uh, with him. And uh, the, the author's oldest brother's name is Michael now. So now he has three different children with three different kids with three different women. Um, they have a whirlwind romance. They get married down in Mexico. Um, soon after that, she's pregnant. And apparently, which I didn't, it's kind of interesting, and I'm not sure what happened with this, but the author said that he had a twin brother. He said that uh, him, he said him, uh, myself and my brother were born. And then my younger brother, Kelvin, was born 12 months later. So he said the author's name is Steve. And then he, he said his brother's name was John. But then they never really mentioned him again in the book. Uh, and when he put down his children's names, he only put down, um, like at one point, he, the author says, oh, you know, he wrote down his children's names for some kind of like, uh, thing that he had to apply for or something like that. And he put down Steve, uh, Mike, Steve, Michael, and Kelvin, but not John. So I don't know if John di died or something or, or I don't understand. So that's strange. I don't, I don't remember that. No, yeah. Kind of, yeah. And I reread it like a bunch of times to be like, am I missing this? But once John was born, they never really mentioned him again. So I don't know what happened with that. So, so no, I remember that. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, they never mentioned him ever again. Yeah, it, he definitely talks about Kelvin, his younger brother, and his older brother Michael. But right, I don't yeah. remember anything about a twin. So maybe something happened. I don't know. But basically, he, she now has four kids with with uh, George. Um, in 1942, he becomes the surgeon to the U.S. Public Health Service, but um, he has a heart condition, and so he can't. He's trying to join up with the with the uh, armed forces, but they won't let him in because he has a heart condition. So they basically have to let him go. Uh, he stays uh, in LA for the Department of Health Social Hygiene Division, um, and so he's running that. Uh, during during the four years that he's doing all that, um, <clears throat> him and Dorero divorce, and she divorces him due to extreme cruelty. Um. And the author kind of talks about how he doesn't, he wasn't really, his dad was like very busy. And so he doesn't really have many memories of his dad on the younger, like when he was the first like four or five years of his, of his existence. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, um, George uh, enrolls in the UNRRA, which is basically like um, uh, a United Nations uh, project that was set up after the war to go to other countries and help out with, um, you know, with doctors. Basically, they would send doctors to these other countries that needed help, and uh, so he signed up for that. And so now he has the prestige of being in the armed forces without having to do any fighting or anything like that. But he has, you know, he has all the uniforms and he has all the prestige of being a military officer. Yet he's not an officer by military standards. Does that make? Sense? I mean, he, you know, what I mean, it's like that gray area of being a medical doctor in the army. Yeah, he, he gets to come back to the States and be like, yeah, I was in the war. Yeah. Like I have all of these medals and I have all of these, you know, my uniform, yeah, this, yeah. Rank, this, this high rank. And um, so he's, he totally buys into it. And he really is enjoying the fact that he can kind of wear these things around and people are impressed with him and, and whatnot. So, and, you know, and it's all crisp white linens and all that kind of thing. So he gets, he looks very, very fancy schmancy when he's, when he shows up. Uh, even oh, goes, like even he likes it so much he buys a jeep when he gets back to the united states and goes out buys it. right yeah and i thought i thought that was interesting because like um like you talked we talked about or you talked about earlier how like um you know he's praised because he's a fucking genius and all this other stuff you know mm -hmm. but then 
enters the real world and mm-hmm. he has to be a crime reporter and a cab driver and all these other things, you know? And I feel like that was like a slap of reality, but then he goes to the war and gets this fucking, you know, finally gets to wear the uniform that all these other guys are wearing and picking up chicks, mm-hmm. you know, like Mr. Popular, you know, because that was like the thing back in that time was like, you know, soldiers were kind of looked highly upon. Yeah. You know? Soldiers get all the girls. Well, yeah, kind of, you know, it was like, you know, it was like that was, and I feel like he bought right into that because this is a person that, you know, didn't even have a childhood. So, you know, he's just looking for attention. And right. so he probably thought, Oh my God, all these other guys are getting attention by being, you know, soldiers or whatever. So he was playing soldier, I guess. Yeah, yeah basically. You know, I, I mean, I don't want to say, what is that, stolen valor, they call that? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say it went that far because, I mean, he did go into it, but, you know, he, he obviously played it up way more than what he did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he loved that. And that was definitely a huge part of his act. And, uh, uh, you know, we'll go into that more later as well. But, um, so he's in there for a while and then suddenly he leaves immediately and goes back to the United States and he thinks his dad thinks that he might've suffered a heart attack or, or something of a health nature that was so scary that he had to just basically up and leave. Um, but while he's over there, he, he sends over all this, um, all these like uh, sculptures and artwork and all this stuff from, from China to his house and, uh, basically leaves, leaves, uh, Ch- I think it was China that he was stationed in, uh, in 1946. So now he's back in LA, uh, 1946 by, this is when he, um, purchases, uh, excuse me, in 1945, he, so I guess overseas he purchases a house in 1945, he buys the Lloyd Wright Soden house on Franklin Avenue in Los Angeles here. Um, Frank, uh, sorry, excuse me. Lloyd Wright is the son of Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright as most people know him as the famous architect. Um, but, uh, Lloyd Wright. Uh, was a son and he kind of lived in his dad's shadow. But one of the major things that he, that he uh, did was that he actually made the, the casting sculpture for the uh, stage at the Hollywood Bowl, the famous kind of shell stage. Uh, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's he was the one that kind of came up with, the, uh, he had the prototype made for that. So oh, cool. yeah, so that house and the Hollywood Bowl have the same architect in, in essence. So kind of cool. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, so he buys the house in 1945 while he's still overseas, and then he arrives in 1946, give or take, and he arrives uh, at, to the house. And so now he owns this house on on um, on Franklin Avenue, very famous house uh, because of the architect. And again, you and I have seen that that house before and know that it's got a very creepy vibe to it. That it has a very menacing look to it. Um, I think you were saying. A shark's mouth. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people say it has like a shark's mouth in the opening. The front steps look like that. I'm very like Aztec mm-hmm. temple, but it's right. I mean, by but, a shark opening its mouth. Yeah, the Aztec thing I think was uh, specifically done on purpose. That was the style that they were looking for. Was an Aztec temple. So uh, there's a couple Frank Lloyd Wright houses in like the father Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm-hmm. But um, one left in Hollywood is the Hollyhock House at the Barnstall Park. Yeah, that one's really cool. That I one want to take a tour has a very Aztec days. feel to it as mm-hmm. well. It definitely is cool. And then the whole like fountain thing in the middle of the house is very, very traditional to the Soden House. Yeah, it's yeah, very definitely these, these houses that have um, 
sort of, uh, what's it, like, having parties in mind, you know, socializing. Entertainment. Entertainment, you know, as their primary objective, you know, rather than living and having a family, it's more entertainment. Um, that's definitely what the Soden house feels like and the Hollyhock house. That's true. Yeah. The Hollyhock house also is, oh, it's so beautiful. It's, well, above, it's also on the top of a park. Over, top like, of a park. Over the city. Like, yeah. It's the only house on top of the city. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's Jameson, we're going to, we're going to kidnap you later this week and take you up there. Woo! All right. Promises, promises. Normally, you don't tell someone you're kidnapping them, but since we didn't say a date, I guess you'll still be surprised. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. That is true. Surprise. <laughs> I love it. We're not going to know when it's going to happen. I would love to see, I would love for you if you kidnap me that you wear your prosthetic mask that you were wearing yesterday. <laughs> My pig face. Your pig face mask. I, I would love it if I wake up and that's the first thing as I see as a bag gets shoved over my head. I make the cutest pig. Yeah. Uh, we'll pull all of this out of the broadcast. He did, but he did say, "What a babe!" Like, I'm such a cute babe. Well, when you, the first picture you sent me, I, I saw you had all the like you had the prosthetic halfway on or something, and I saw I had a snout. So the first thing I sent you was a gif of uh, Miss Pig. Miss so. well, then did you see the completed look? Yes, I saw the completed look, and that's why I wrote, "What a babe." It it's a hundred percent a trashy Miss Piggy. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I guess I kind of nailed that unbeknownst to myself. <laughs> I did like the pose of of you grabbing Patrick and him just kind of being like, "Meh, what are you gonna do?" <laughs> well, he had been sitting there for three hours sure. watching the be put on my face. Yeah, that's tough. Uh, to be fair, well, if you saw my mouth, that was jaw dropped. <laughs> if you could see it through my mask jaw drop well the only thing i really have left is because by this point now he's living in los angeles and it's about the same time that this crime is happening so i'm not going to go much further but i did want to bring up the fact that by now he's hanging out with his hollywood arty art art arty artsy fartsy friends and uh uh his big his big friend who is the most popular probably the most well-known artist would be man ray and he, at this point, is already a well-known photographer and sculpturist and all around kind of like in the know, cool, you know, art, art guy. And um, him and Fred Sexton and George are all hanging out at the, at the Soden house constantly and partying and having all these great get togethers with other artsy fartsy people. And just, you know, they have they have their whole art world thing going on now. Man Ray is super into the Marquis de Sade, which is, uh, you know, a very notorious French author who wrote, um, uh, I forget the name of the book at the moment, but, um, you know, very... Something about a journey into hell or something. Yeah, I, everyone, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I forget. I didn't get the name of the book. I forgot to write it down. Um, I but it's, I'm sure if you just say Marquis de Sade, right, the first thing that pops up is that book. Echo. Who wrote A Journey to Hell? I didn't get that. Oh, nope. No, no worries. <laughs> so, I Sorry. Uh, he writes this notorious book about sex and devi deviant sex, like just bordering on, you know, BDSM and all that stuff. Um, like so sadism. Yeah, yeah. And, and Fred and George and Man are all like, this dude knows what he's talking about and he is the shit. 
So they're really in that on that scene and on that kick. And that's where, you know, all of this kind of culminates into a dark side with George. And a lot of people see it. A lot of people know about it, but because he is so well respected and such again, such a smart guy and so well known, nobody really thinks anything of it. They're just like, he's eccentric. He's you know what I mean? He's an artist. He's just, he's a fucking genius. So I don't think anybody looked, looked too deep. And, you know, obviously we have more to talk about with that story. So I'll kind of lay it off there, but um, that kind of brings everything into focus as far as his life up to uh, let's say meeting the black Dahlia um, uh, for, uh, for George Hodel. You know, there's nice. clearly a lot more we could go into detail wise, but um, let's let's go with the murder and then we can kind of backtrack. So pretty nuts that that's what I mean to this day. Like you, you know, to, like, like we said, the uh, case is still open; it's never been solved. Like you said, and uh, I, guess, I don't think it ever will be, unfortunately. Yeah, much sure. Well, this is a bright and sunny day we just had. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, thank you for joining us in Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast. Uh, Hollywood's Haunted, the podcast is the work of its owners and promoters and all that. Hollywood's Haunted, Hollywood's Haunted. Uh, you can catch us on anywhere you get podcasts, iHeartRadio, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Hollywood's on Spotify, and don't forget to check out our Patreon at Patreon.com. Hollywood's haunted. Hollywood's haunted. Hollywood's really, really. Well, that's not. Now we have to die to say hello. Right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs>